I went to an escape room. Have you ever done one of those? Yeah. Multiple. I like them. It was Stranger Things themed. I didn't choose it. Interesting. So it was fun because it was real 80s and there were like a whole yeah. bunch of 80s purses filled with like little 80s trinkets that somehow they found. Like they're little um, like personal like room sprayers that are like yeah. three inches tall, little skinny tubes, like aerosol cans. That's funny. I was like, where did you find those? Goodwill. <laughs> I was like, that was the most fun part was, was how I think it'd be really fun to design escape rooms. Yeah. Like, not just the puzzles, but, like, literally, like, the aesthetics that are in them, because they're always, like, fully done up. Like, they had to buy so many things. And considering they change, it's like, they don't keep the same four forever, they change them out all the time. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I could never make one, because I'm dumb, and I can't figure out puzzles. When you, when you really think about the puzzles that you are given, most of them are not that complex. It's just, like, looking at the right portion of the room at the right time with the right lighting. Yeah. So I feel like making them would be easier than solving them. Maybe. Because you can just sort of do them backwards. Like, what do you want the final ending to be? Just build up to it. I don't know how good I would be at, like, making riddles, though. Yeah, I'd be bad Like, at word that. puzzles, I'm not very good at creating. Well, that's all I have to say. <laughs> I need to go back to the gym. When's the last time you went? <laughs> a long time. <laughs> Probably around the last time we went to Nashville. Well, not the Florida trip, but the November trip. Mm-hmm. I forgot you stopped there, briefly. Yeah. Did you just, like, stop to take photos, or did you? Stop for lunch. That's nice. It was good. It was a barbecue place we haven't been to before. But, yeah, I need to go back. But that means I need to wake up early again. And I feel like no matter what I do, I don't get enough sleep. Because Drew and I were Mm -hmm. thinking about going this morning. But yesterday I was so tired at work. I was like, I don't... Gosh, the weather change is getting me right now. Because I'm usually a morning person. And recently I've been sleeping until I ate. And James is like... You never sleep, and I'm like, but I wake up, and I just feel like my eyes don't want to open. I I think it's the weather. I really do. I know. That might be what it is. I'm not sure. Especially if you're experiencing it, too. I've just been extra tired, and Mm -hmm. I was really tired at work yesterday, so I was like, I I probably should sleep in for my off day. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. I slept in pretty late. It's also (sighs) too much sleep. I think it's just making sure you wake up at, like, the right point in your sleep cycle. I've been having to watch old movies to fall asleep. How old? Like, the 30s <laughs> to 60s. Black and white? Yeah, some of them are. That's fun. What do you watch them on? Amazon Prime. Mm. Stars are a bunch of free bunch ones, because nobody wants to watch them. Right? <laughs> It's all, like, older, like, murder mysteries or, like, crime oh, ones or whatever. Star Wars so has, like, like, a weird amount of westerns. I don't want to watch westerns. Which is where I got the Dalton gang from. Because oh there's a movie God. called The Dalton Sisters. And it's about, like, the Dalton gang is killed and then the sisters take up the oh my torch. God. That's not a real thing that happened. But the I Dalton wish. gang was real. It'd be fun. You should have told that story and been like, the second half of the story was all fake. <laughs> I'd be like, wow. That, would have been, that was already a long story. Like, that would have been a long, long story if I did that. That was a long one. The movie? <clears throat> not bad, just not good. It's an old western. Yeah. No, it was just an old western. It's exactly what it was. All right. Tell me how to pronounce his name. G-R-A-E-M-E. A-M-E? Graham? It's a first name. It probably is just Graham, but spelled weird. So, this is a story of Graham. Graham Thorne. Graham Thorne. Don't know. I do Graham. Graham? There's no way. I don't know how to do an Australian accent to think about how you would pronounce that in Australian. Well, the dad's name is Basil. It's either basil, 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 
Basil. Basil? How does it spell? I don't know. Wait, okay. G-R-A-M-E? G-R-A-E-M-E. Okay. Because I was going to say, that's what comes up when I search that. Here. We can can look at it. It comes up on the internet as being a name. Maybe they'll tell us how to pronounce it. It might be great. I mean, it's an alternative to Graham. So it's probably Graham. I'll go ahead and tell you. Just just do what feels right right on your mouth. So... (laughs) <laughs> Grammy, I don't know. You wouldn't. Grammy? I don't think you pronounce the e at the end. <laughs> Grammy. Um, Graham Thorn. Graham Thorn. Graham Thorn. Probably doesn't sound as weird. I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, but we're just gonna go, um, and move on and just say Thorn for most of the story because at first I kept typing the first name and then I was like, I'm not gonna know how to pronounce this when I read it, so. That's done. On, on behind gonna... the name, you can pronounce it either Graham or Graham. Those literally sound the same to me. Graham. Graham. So either Graham, as in the letter M that is the color gray, or Graham. Anyway, you figure it out and you decide what works best for you. <laughs> um, so I got my information from Wikipedia smh.com.au, thebrag.com, and murderpedia.org. So, by 1960, the construction of the Sydney Opera House was becoming increasingly expensive, so the New South Wales government initiated numerous opera house lotteries to help raise money. Those things had never made sense to me. That's what, that's what they're doing for the golf course in Eureka. Really? Yeah, they're doing, like, a little, like, 52-card drawing. Uh-huh. Everybody puts money in, and you pick the number to raise money for it. So, like, that's... I don't know how they make money off of that's doing that. That's what I've never understood. I'm like, if you're giving, like, half a- away half of the... But you could have had profit. the whole. Yeah, that's That's what doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> no, yeah, that's... Anyway, because that still happens today all around mm-hmm. here, but it just... I'm just like, this doesn't seem smart. But it never okay. makes sense to me. People should, like, why don't people just, like, well, give like five have, bucks? Or it's, like, have them donate and then pull a name from the people that donate and they get to have, like, a giant plaque or something. Yeah. Like, do, yeah, I wouldn't do, like, a monetary prize. I don't prize. know. Anyway. I'd do something alternative. So, the $100,000 first Lifetime prize, tickets. which is equivalent to $2.9 million now, oh my was won by... All right, now here I might have messed up. <laughs> so... Here I typed Brazil. I don't think it's Brazil. <laughs> like a weird but it might be Basil. Um, probably Basil. Basil's a name. Brazil I've never heard. Well, it's like, would you pronounce it Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> Did you spell it like Brazil? Well, it's literally spelled B-R-A-Z-I-L. That's Brazil. <laughs> But you went to pronounce it as Brazil. Well, it's either that or basil or basil. Basil's usually the name and basil's the leaf. I know, but I don't know. So anyway, it's one of those two. Thorn. Anyway, it's the dad of Graham. Graham, whatever. Um, So he won it in the lottery drawn on Wednesday, June 1st, 1960. Since the 60s were a different time, images and details of the lottery winners were published on the front pages of Sydney newspaper, where they said the prize would be paid by Thursday, July 7th. Smart. They even said when they get the money by. (laughs) So the Thorne family included, because now it's spelled differently again. Wait, different than Basil So it's like, I don't know which one's the typo. Anyway, so it's the husband... Which is the name? It could be Brazil, could be Basil, <laughs> could be Basil. I don't know. His wife Frida, older daughter Cheryl, who had been institutionalized. Oh no! I read that and I was like, for what? Being a woman, who knows? She probably got her period and they sent her away. Um, what? Ta- what? When is this? The the, this is like the sixties. <laughs> you could have still done it back then. Yeah, yeah. Don't act like they weren't still open. They didn't close until like the nineties. Oh yeah, I know those ones at least. Um, son, Graham, Graham, age eight. They never even said the age of Cheryl, which is really But she's in the sad. institution, and that's what matters most for her, apparently. Um, 
It's what matters most for her parents, not for her, Sadie. They don't take care of you there. Anyway, because I'm pretty sure Australian institutions were worse than American. If, I would say, is that hard to believe? But no, because this is a present no island. Clue. I've only ever heard so, of one, and they had a farm. That's all I remember. Yeah, none of them are good. <laughs> They're all abusive. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know that. Um, and younger daughter, Belinda. So it's like you have two normal names in this family. Well, the mom is normal, too. But, and the boys have dumb names, so just remember that. And then age three. That's how old she was. Belinda. Belinda was three. So they lived at 79 Edward Street, which was a rented home in the Sydney suburb of Bondi. Bondi Beach. Bondi Rescue. <laughs> One of my favorite shows That's in the such entire a good world. Show. <laughs> I love it so much and I need to find where I can watch other All seasons. All those bees. Um, oh my god. So the son, because he's the only son, I'm just going to say the son and then I'll say Thorn later on. His morning routine consisted of him waiting at the corner of Wellington and O'Brien Street, where a family friend, Phyllis Smith, would pick him up and take him to school with her sons. I don't know why he could just wait in front of his house, but you know. I know, I was going to say, I realize it makes sense for a second, but I did forget he was eight and did think he just sort of chilled on the corner. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't know. So on the morning of July 7th, Thorne left for school at 8.30 a.m., but when Smith came to pick him up around 8.40... So, like, he waits there for 10 minutes every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so when she came to get him at 840, he was nowhere to be seen. So she drove to their house to see if he was actually going to go to school that morning or if he was sick. Um, and Frida was surprised that he wasn't waiting for his ride and thought he might have gotten to school by other means. Um, so Smith drove to school to drop off her boys and she learned that he still wasn't at school. And so, I guess she called. I know. Um, I'm just happy this mom keeps this checking all the things. Checking, yeah. is she with the mom? Is he at the school? Like, she's getting out of the car and making so, sure yeah. he's okay. So, then, I guess um, Phyllis called Frida. And Frida then called the New South Wales police and reported him missing. So, at 9.40 a.m., a man with a noticeable foreign accent called the Thorn household. Sergeant Larry O'Shea of Bondi Police had already arrived at, uh, to their house around 9.30, and so whenever the phone call um, happened, he took the fo- telephone from Frida, pretending to be Basil, because I'm just assuming that's his name now, um, who was out of town on business at the time. Um, and the kidnapper said, quote, I have your boy. I want 25000 I don't know what their money is, if it's pounds, um, but it looked like a backwards half two, half three. I thought Austra- I thought it was dollars there. No. Well, and they might call it Australian dollars. dollars. They don't use But British it looks pounds. like a backwards two slash a three. The top looks like the oh, two maybe it is a pound. and the bottom looks like a three. I I'm not Australian sure. Money. So anyway, pounds or dollars? I don't know. Um... Before five o'clock this afternoon, I'm not fooling. If I don't get the money before five o'clock, I'll feed the boy to the sharks. Okay. Dramatic. Um, so <laughs> in the winter, it is winter time, isn't it? What month? July. Yeah, that's the winter. Um. Okay. So. O'Shea told him that he didn't know if he would be able to get that large amount of money because um, he didn't actually know that the Thorne family had won the lottery. So the caller then said he would call back at 5 p.m. and hung up. Mm-hmm. But I'm just confused because if he wants it before 5 o'clock this afternoon and he's going to kill the kid, why are you going to call back at 5 o'clock, which is after the time that you wanted the money? He's changed his mind. He's going to address it. It is... So it was pounds then, but in 1966, they changed it to dollars. Okay. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so... Yeah, I'm just confused by this. And he left no directions of where he wants the money. Bring it to me or, or he dies. Yeah. Th- but also, I'm not going to tell you where. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, um. But yeah. So he said he'd call back at five and then he hung up. And then he didn't call back at five, but at 6.47, it says p.m., which would make sense since he called at 
Did I just say 647? It's 947. It says that he called back at 947. Mm-hmm. That's not five. I know. <laughs> but it's like if he... And it says PM, but it's like, did he call that much later than what he was planning? Or did he literally call back like seven minutes from when he originally called at 940? I see the, the confusion. So I'm not sure if it is... Well, what does he do? I'm not sure if it's PM or AM. But the kidnapper called again, this time another officer who was pretending to be Basil as well, answered, and he stalled for a while to allow for the phone to be traced. Um, so the kidnapper started to give instructions that the money was to be put in two paper bags, but then hung up without providing any more instructions. Okay, so I'm thinking he did call back seven minutes later because he realized he didn't give instructions so on how I, to that's give That's why it to I was him. confused, because I was like... So it might have been PM, it might have been AM, I don't know. But that's all the calls that were ever made. Well, so he never told him where to leave it, just it needs to be in two paper bags? As far as I could find. Put it on the corner where you found the kid? Like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) As far as I can find, that's all he said. So, the police had began to conduct a search for the boy in the morning um, when he was reported missing, and so news of the kidnapping leaked to a reporter, and at 8.30pm that night, it was public information on the news. So, Friday, July 8th, the focus of the investigation moved to Sydney's northeastern suburbs, where Thorne's school backpack, um, they called it his case. Just They his said case? his, Graham's case. And I was like, I'm assuming they mean backpack. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Why would you I didn't call grow it up a in, case? in 60s Australia. <laughs> Why would you call it a case? Anyway. So, it was found near Seaforth, um, which I don't know where that is in relation to here, but I don't think it's far. So, that same day, the police received a tip that a boy matching Thorne's description was seen with two men and a woman heading out of Pennant Hills. Um, the owners of the petrol station had reported that they saw the group with the boy pulling into the petrol station in a dark-colored vehicle um, in a Dodge-type sedan with the number plate on the front missing. They had purchased gas, and as the vehicle left, the owner managed to spot the rear number plate. So, you go, gas station owner. Good job. When the vehicle was spotted by an off-duty police officer the following day, it sped off. Not at Which all suspicious. Me. Well, it confused me because it's like, first of all, why did you speed off if he's an off-duty police officer unless he's wearing, like, his uniform still? And also, what did this police officer do? Did he go, that's the car, and then it sped off? Or was, like, he, was he in his police car? I don't know. They didn't say. Because sometimes they take him home, so, like, I know, that's he could be I, driving at so home. So, I'm not sure. But I was just picturing, like, it's just, like, a guy, regular guy in, like, street clothes to, like, mm-hmm. walk past there's, and just, like, no scared a little bit to... too long. <laughs> That could be. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I picture. It's just like a regular looking guy who just walked just past and he was their like, eyes. Why don't more people stare, um, speed off when you look at them? I, d- I don't know. <laughs> people are always staring at me. Anyway, so the license plate number that the gas station attendant had gotten was checked and it had been registered to a different vehicle. So the plate had either been stolen off of a different car or. That would be it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the option. Um, okay, so on July 11th, Thorne's school hat and the contents of his backpack, um, or case, as I like to call it, were found nearby. Um, oh, wait, they found the backpack in one place and the stuff in another? Yes. Also, nearby, I'm not sure, nearby to what? They just said nearby. To where they found the case, so might to where been... he went missing, yeah, I don't to where know. the it just police officer saw the car speed off. It just said nearby. So, I don't know exactly where. Um, soon after they were discovered, a $5,000 or pound reward was put up, um, I think by the police. It didn't really say who. And then another 15000 was offered by two newspapers, which really just led to a number of fake calls. Um, they know they don't get the money if they don't find the kid, right? It's the 60s. <laughs> they do not know that. So, investigators started following other pieces of evidence, like a few weeks before the kidnapping, a foreign man, acting as an investigator, called the Thorns residence seeking a Mr. Bogner. 
Um, and he also asked Frida to confirm their telephone number. Um, and then they, it says, a similar looking man, but I never found in any of my research a description of, like, the guy that was seen with the kid at the gas station. To know who to might know look similar. Who, this, who he looks like, or what he looks like? I don't know. But it just says, a similar looking man had also been seen numerous times by multiple witnesses in the park across from their house. So this guy was, like, watching their, casing them, I'm mm-hmm. assuming, since he learned about their lottery winnings. So, also at 9.20 a.m. on the morning of the kidnapping, some witnesses had seen an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line double-parked on the corner of Francis and Wellington Streets near where Thorne was normally picked up. So, they never said if they saw someone waiting inside. They just saw a car? They just saw a car. Matching the description of the other car. I figured this is the 60s and therefore it would be much easier to be like, no, it's this kind of car. Because, like, gosh, I'd be useless in being a witness. They're like, did you see a car? I was like, yeah, it was an SUV. It was dark. <laughs> I would never be able to tell you what I kind. <laughs> I know cars. I know you do. It's a talent. You can do it from a distance. <laughs> I know. I can tell in the... See, it's stupid headlights? That's <laughs> that. <laughs> Literally, when it's pitch dark outside and they're behind me, like, eight miles back. It's a Toyota 4Runner. 2013. <laughs> You've done that before, though! Um, okay. So, yeah. So, the car was parked there. So, investigators checked more than 270,000 registration records and established that there were 5,000 vehicles matching the general description... Either in Australia or in the area. I'm not sure which. But, so, assuming the car had either been borrowed or stolen, officers interviewed owners. Um, That's a lot of interviews. Yeah. So, they, they, yeah. So, they interviewed a bunch of owners, but really didn't get anything from that. Um, So, on Tuesday, August 16th, nearly six weeks after the kidnapping... About 1.5 km is kilometers, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is equivalent to miles. Smaller. Um, from where his backpack was found, Thorne's body had been discovered hidden on vacant land in Grandview Grove, Seaforth in Sydney. So the kidnapper lied. He did not feed him to the sharks. Um, the kidnapper sucks. And can't even... Looks like you live right there. That'd be so much easier to do is throw and the body into the ocean. They're much more likely to not him. find it then. Like <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so it was the body was identified at the city morgue by his father the next day. So that's sad. Poor kid. He's dead. Um he had been wrapped in a blue tartan picnic blanket and tucked into a ledge. Um, he was tied with string, had been gagged with a scarf, and was still wearing his school uniform. So the blanket containing his body had been there for some time. Um, two local children had known about it, but the discovery was only made when mentioned to their parents around 7 p.m. that day. So I'm assuming the kids like would play in the area and like notice the blanket being there for quite a while. And, and then, then they mentioned it to their parents, and their parents were like, oh. or just said it around their parents, and their parents were like, maybe someone should check on that. I don't know, but anyway, so. Forensic examination of the blanket showed it to be the number 0639 of 3000, which had been manufactured (laughs) at Onkaparinga Mills. I can't see the word. Um, anyway... It's not really important, so that's my best guess at what it says. In South Australia, between June 6th, 1955 and January 19th, 1956. It had been sold in Melbourne and bought by someone, obviously. Could have been stolen, but it was bought. That's impressive, like, record, like, record keeping, that they were able to track it back that far. That literally says all of that. That it was sold in Melbourne? Well, you can track that, but it was also easier to track stuff like that back then, I'm pretty sure. 
Then they can be harder because there's no computers. It's all paper. That's true. That's a lot well, of paper. At least it would take longer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. So anyway, um, I wrote like by who, and like all this other stuff. But then I didn't realize until later that we have no idea who this is until like the end, hmm. because where I got this information from just really wasn't good at making sense of the material. Well. Yeah, just like how it says, it was found nearby. Uh huh. Like, okay. Where? Like the person writing it knows <laughs> yeah. and forgot that you don't. Yeah. <laughs> um. So two tree types that were not present at the vacant lot were found. Um. On the blanket, as well, along with Pekingese and blonde human hair. So dog and a blonde. I don't know how they would have determined it was Pekingese back then. I just think they assumed it was dog hair. Well, because well, you have can't... hair, not fur. So, like, that at least narrows it down Yeah, some. but you also can't... Like, you're not getting DNA from that, so... Anyway. No clue. Moving on. Um, examination of the body showed cuts and abrasions and internal trauma, and it was clear that the boy had died from either... It says it was clear that the boy had died from, and then it goes... It says two different things. It's either this and or I this. And I was like, who wrote it's this? not clear. <laughs> who wrote this? I need to know right now, because that is the dumbest sentence I've ever heard in my life. So it goes from either asphyxiation, a skull fracture, or a combination of the two. I'm like, so it's not clear, because that's three different ways that it could have don't know died. which one Thank it was. Bye. Um, so, they estimated his time of death as being within 24 hours of the kidnapping, as it normally seems to go. Mm-hmm. That's why there's a TV show called The First 48, because that's mm-hmm. the most precious time. Anyway... He had been dumped soon afterwards, um, so that had that blanket had been there for quite a while. Um, in addition, soil scrapings from the body and blanket showed tiny fragments of pink... It says livestock. But I think it is meant to say limestock? Mortar? It's some kind of rock. Limestock makes more limestock. sense, but I still have no clue what that is. I don't either. Pink mortar. Okay, mm-hmm. it's rocks. I, I typoed, so. Um, so it revealed that his body had been stored under a house before he had been dumped. Because I guess that's the only place you can find that stuff. Yeah. So police began to search for a house with a blue car, pink mortar, and two, tr- two specific trees. Because they said the two specific kinds, but I... It's not very important in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. It is important in them finding, you know, the right place. With two trees growing in the yard, um, following a tip from a postman, a house was identified at I 28... I think you meant limestone and just super typoed it. Because <sighs> limestock's not a thing. <laughs> well, you know, lim- pink limestone. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, following a tip from a postman, a house was identified at 28 Moore Street in the suburb of... Another name. Clontarf. Oh, so ugly. <laughs> How is it spelled? C L O N T A R F. Anyway, <laughs> which was one point five kilometers from where the body was found. So that's pretty close. I think, because <laughs> I'm not sure. Wait, how many kilometers? 1.5. Yeah, that's close. Um, so police visited the house on Monday, October 3rd, and learned that it had been occupied by a Hungarian immigrant named Stephen Bradley. Now we have that accent. Um, yes. And he had also owned an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line and had a Pekingese, Pekingese named Sherry. What? Nope, not Sherry. Cherry. So now we have that dog, and we also have that American car brand, because they thought Dodge before, but it was Mm -hmm. Ford. And um, his wife had dyed blonde hair. Got all the So, however, Bradley and his family had vacated the house on July 7th for a rental flat at 49 Osborne Street in Manly, and had left Australia for London with his family a week earlier on September 26th. I don't know if it was full-time or just for a vacation. Um, I think they were moving. But if they left the... I think they were moving, but I can't remember. Okay. Um, 
So, Sydney policemen were able to track, there's, like, a whole bunch of, like, what flight he was on, where they were able to, like, catch him and whatever, but it was kind of boring, so I didn't put it in. Um, so if you want more detail about- It exists. His flight <laughs> patterns, you can look it up. I just didn't care. Um, so Sydney policemen were able to track him down through, like, the flights he was on, and they ended up arresting him in Ceylon? C-E-Y-L-O-N. Is that a country? Ceylon? Ceylon? That's a country. Um, or I don't place. know how he got there, if he was, like, fleeing because he figured the police were after him. Or if or... that's the stopover he had to make to fly yeah, back, because I don't think... it's Australia is pretty far from England. Well, that's where they... Yeah. Anyway, that's where Now they was... stop in Singapore. That's where he was arrested. And after five weeks of legal wrangling, Bradley was extradited to Australia on November 18th, 1960, allegedly making a verbal confession to one of the arresting officers just before the flight landed in Sydney. He signed a written confession in English, part of which states, I went out and watched the Thorn Boy leaving the house and seen him for about three mornings, and I have seen where he went. I'm depressed reading this because it hurts my brain. But this is how he wrote it. And one morning I have followed him to the school at Bellevue Hill. One or two mornings I have seen a woman pick him up and take him to the school. On the day we moved from Clontarf, I went out to Edward Street. I parked the car in a street. I don't know the name of the street. It's off Wellington Street. I have got out from the car and waited on the corner until the boy walked down to the car. So that's what he said in part of it. So the trial began on Monday, March 29th, um, 1961, where it came to light that he had been married three times and his second wife died under suspicious circumstances. Mm. I don't know why I just um, stuttered so hard. Um, in some type of car accident. But, like, his past was just, like, kind of shady, but not really enough to mention other than that. Mm. He had, like, changed his name, um, I think, like, two or three times. So, he might have been a wanted criminal in other places. Yeah. Um, but I don't think for anything like this before. Yeah. But, so, he might have killed someone before this, mm -hmm. um, kid. So... Um, they think that he might have been inspired by the April 1960 P-E-U-G-E-O-T I think it's the last name. Pego? P-E-U-G-E-T? Ransom case in Paris. It's French. Um, so I guess it was another ransom case like this that was pretty famous back then, so he might have been inspired by that when he saw the lottery winners in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he pleaded not guilty to murder, but was identified as the man, um, by witnesses. Mm -hmm. Like, the man that everybody had seen yeah. during all of these coincidental, you know, weird happenings. He admitted to kidnapping and provided details of how he posed as a driver and fabricated a tale to persuade Thorne into his car that day, um, taking him west to Centennial Park. It says he assaulted, but I think he, like, attacked the kid. I don't think the kid was ever, like, sexually assaulted or anything like that. I think he just, like, so physically assault, assaulted. assault, not sexual assault. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, which knocked him unconscious. Um... Then tied and wrapped him up in a blanket and placed him in the boot before driving north across the harbor bridge and making his first ransom call. He arrived at his house and checked on the boy around three o'clock, um, and then he checked again and claims that Thorne must have suffocated in the back of his car. Which well, is... But he checked on him and he was fine. Mm -hmm. Wait, was he still in the boot the whole yes, time? Yes. Okay, so yeah, he just... Well... Yeah, that happens. Well, then, like, the... The police did, like, a trial to see if that would happen, and they said that with, like, the amount of air that stays in there, you'd be able to survive for seven hours. But it's, like, was the person yeah, was also he, tied up the way that this was kid he, was? like, left and, like, in a way where he was just, like, not getting enough air to yeah, begin so with? Yeah, so it's, like, I like, don't know. I, I can see it being possible. Yeah. 
Also, if his head injury was bad enough, it might have affected yeah, his... with however his wounds were. Because they're unsure or, or about... like, how he was tied. Yeah. But anyway. Seems possible. So he was sentenced to penal servitude for life, which is the maximum penalty provided That's a, like, in a... the NSW for murder. He was sent to Goulburn... Goal? G-A-O-L? Gaul? 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 Um, where he worked as a hospital orderly and was kept protected from other prisoners. Sad. I wish the other prisoners would have gotten to him. Um, so he died in prison of a heart attack on October 6th, um, 1968 at the age of 42 while oh, playing young. a tennis competition at the, at, during his, um, sentence. So I don't think his life was, I don't think his life was bad enough in having to be a hospital orderly. Um, and he never showed any remorse for his crimes. So that's nice. Goodness. After this case, lottery procedures in Australia were changed, <laughs> with winners being given the option to remain anonymous, as everyone should. Like that guy who won the lottery um, here a few years ago, who like just covered every inch of his skin up, so you couldn't tell who he was at all. I do not recall that in any oh, it's, way. It's, a, it's, it's just like a picture that went like viral for a oh. little bit. Um, so the case also proved to be a pivotal... Um, to the development of forensic science and new kidnapping laws in Australia, so at least good came out of this case. Um, so kidnapping for ransom was seen as an American phenomenon, mainly because of the Lindbergh kidnapping case, so people, I guess, just assumed it only (laughs) happened in America, um, because nothing like this had ever happened in Australia before. So this is the first kidnapping for ransom case in Australia. Um, and yeah. that's the story. He wears, he wears a scream costume. Oh my god. <laughs> that's the story of the Thorn Boy. Um, and it's sad. That is sad. But at least, um... I think the most frustrating thing is they these kidnappings. that just because things happen in America doesn't mean it only happens in America. Well, especially if they think he's inspired by that Parisian case. Yeah. So, like we we think he was expired by this person who did it in France, but kidnapping only, only American. <laughs> well, it wasn't even kidnapping; it was just kidnapping for ransom. But mm-hmm. well, the other one was for ransom, the Paris one. I looked it up really quick. <sighs> anyway, that's all I have. I that interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Mm-hmm. It's in, like, true crime stuff in Australia, like, shows and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so it's there. a popular one so there. There's a lot of <gasps> things that you can look at if you want to know more about the case. Anyway. I don't know. I'm impressed. Just, like, like the one where it was, like, the that brewery man who was kidnapped. Like, the detective work. Good job. Like, that's impressive yeah. things you're doing for that time period, in my opinion, from what I know. <laughs> Like, the tree types and tracking down all those numbers. That's so much manual work. To track down those numbers to so the blanket? Did that help them? The blanket thing? <laughs> I think it might have. Because it had been bought as a gift for his wife. Oh, so like they definitely someone. connected mm-hmm. it to him. That's impressive. I'm covering Nopeming Sanatorium. So, not as bad as an asylum. Tuberculosis hospitals are usually slightly better. A little. Well, because you're not sent there because you're not wanted. You're sent there because you're sick. So, my sources are substreet.org and haunted rooms. So, Nopeming Sanatorium. I, I assume it's Nopeming, not Nopeming, because that's the other way to pronounce it. Nopeming. Yeah, that's, that's how it's spelled. So, Nopeming is located near Duluth, Minnesota. Um, the whole construction process for the hospital is interesting, but in no way related to, like, the paranormal aspects of its self. It, it, it was just, like, a a guy worked really hard to get it done and have the state pay for it because he thought this was, like, the new future of medicine. Yeah. Um. So, construction began April 1911, um, and there was a statewide naming contest, because it's a state-run hospital, which was special. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the names had to fit into one of four categories. They had to be an Indian name, a historical name, an English name, um, or anything that was relevant to the history of the anti-tuberculosis movement. <laughs> Which is an odd name because it makes it sound like you're anti-people with tuberculosis, but it just means yeah. getting rid of tuberculosis. So they said that the English names were all really boring. The historical names were mostly French and too hard to pronounce. Same. I guess nobody submitted anything that was related to the history of the anti-tuberculosis movement because they don't even mention that. So the winner, so the winner was an Indian name, Nopeming, which is also why I think it's pronounced Nopeming and not Nopeming. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it means either out of the woods or into the forest. And I don't know if that's a dialectal issue or what. But it means one of those two things. Either way, it was an appropriate name for this hospital that was put in the middle of the no middle of the nowhere. Middle of nowhere in the woods. So like like this was so in the middle of nowhere that when people originally got there there were no paved roads. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well so, that makes sense back then. It had uh, the first buildings that were built were the main building which was called the Hart House, and then the Children's Cottage, which had an open-air school on the second floor, um, where the exterior walls were on hinges so they could lift up, because cold, clean air was thought to be uh, the best treatment for tuberculosis at the time. Mm-hmm. Which I just... It's a shame that building isn't there anymore, because that sounds so cool. Like, the walls open. It's not windows, the walls. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, like, I can imagine it, but it's still it's a shame it's not there anymore. Um, so May 1912, the first patients arrived to Nopeming, a tax fund, ta- taxpayer-funded hospital. I feel like it's one of the few of its kind. Yeah. At the time, especially. Um, so almost 50 sick people arrived from Duluth on a caravan of horse-drawn carriages along no paved roads. So I assume there's at least a path, though. <laughs> so, um... They all had pulmonary tuberculosis because it's a tuberculosis hospital. Mm-hmm. But the building was not quite ready for them. Um, so that first spring, there are a number of people had to sleep in tents outside. Um, and the waiting list for the hospital immediately what like outgrew its capacity. Home? Do do that? <laughs> I don't think they knew they'd have to stay in tents. I think the first fifty were chosen and sent there because fifty is like a nice round number to make the state-run hospital look impressive. Anyway, so the waiting list immediately outgrows the hospital's capacity, obviously, because they're already outside of their capacity when they open. <laughs> and the spring after they open, they also have people sleeping in tents. I assume during the winter they all shove in. What? <laughs> it's too heck? cold. <laughs> anyway, Welcome to the hospital. This will be your This is your tent. <laughs> Just move that snake over. <laughs> so by 1915, the Trudeau building is built. And a nursing program is established to help with the understaffing issue they also had, because they're in the middle of nowhere in northern Minnesota. Yeah. Not a lot of trained nurses. Um, and not a lot of trained nurses that are willing to move to the middle of nowhere to treat tuberculosis patients. Um, two years later, they built a temporary temporary building called the Wilcutts Building. Um, to house more people, because, again, they're, just, they're perpetually slightly over burdened. In 1918, there's a fire. It is called the Great Fire by locals and that spread across northern Minnesota. It's like a giant forest fire. Mm-hmm. Like California gets all the time. Um, Every day. So like, but like whole t- towns burn down. Nearly 500 people die and more than 50,000 were displaced. Um, Everybody go to the TB hospital. No, no, no. No, Pemming is also evacuated because it's in the line oh, okay. of the fire. Um, so all I the I was just gonna say everybody moved in. No. <laughs> all the tuberculosis patients are evacuated to Duluth. Um, but the facility was located on the top of a hill, and I think the tre- trees were cleared far enough away, so its its little knoll position was beneficial because they don't lose any buildings. Yeah. So good for them, but the patients were crowded into these refugee centers. Um, and a few of them contracted influenza, which spread across the rest of the hospital population when they got back, <laughs> which is not the best sickness for tuberculosis patients to catch 
or anybody at that time. Influenza is dangerous, and it's also 1918, so this might be Spanish flu. Still kills everybody. Wow. Yeah. Well, not everybody, but... But people still die from it now, yeah. By 1922, there are more than 200 patients at Nopeming, um, not including the staff that live there. I'm assuming they're still slightly overbooked. In 1926, the Chateau is added, which is the first building there designed as a modern hospital building, and it was expanded again in 1927 and again in 1948, and housed patients until the 1980s. Like, they built it well enough. Mm Mm-hmm. That it, that it continue being, could continue being used that long. By 1930, there were 31 buildings on the campus, including a steam plant, water filtration plant, sewage treatment plant, houses for the doctors, cottages for the nurses, and several cabin-style structures around the grounds so that patients could rest between walks in the short air, in, in the short air, in the fresh air, because, like, they couldn't walk very far because they have a lung issue. So they had, like, little huts for them to chill in for a little bit. Um, so it sounds like it was a very lovely campus and it's, like, prime. Mm-hmm. They also, for the staff, had tennis courts. And for the patients, they built a new cafeteria with a stage. Uh, Put on plays. In the cafeteria? Yeah. You know, like, think about all those churches. They have those combo rooms. Or, like, schools have those combo rooms, too. Yeah, they used to. Where it's, to. it's, it's the gym, the cafeteria, well, and the theater. they didn't have enough room to build more. I think they, they, they just they didn't want to build another building. Remember, this is state money. That's yeah. To build a theater separate would be a little bit ridiculous to do with taxpayer money. They've done dumber things. Yeah, I know, but they have funding issues anyway there. So, yeah. um, they did a whole bunch of experimental TB research at Nopeming. Um, TB research. TB. Oh, tuberculosis. I was like, what the consumption hell research. Is that better? Um, one of the things they did is they had a whole bunch of guinea pigs. Oh. Um, and they would infect them with TB. Stop. Um, and then they created a test using excrement mm. from from using these guinea pigs, which had the ability to detect D- TB earlier than x-rays, which is important. I don't... They don't seem to have done, like, terrible, terrible things to them other than infecting them with TB. Well, it's not great. Well, Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they could have figured out that they can get it from human excrement before they used guinea pigs. Yeah? What did you think? (laughs) I think the idea was, okay, we've immediately infected them. Now we need to see how early in their infection can we detect it in their feces. Um, There was also research done to determine when tuberculosis was most and least um, contagious which is, that's important. And also, they also started using chemotherapy treatments to see how they how well they would do um, to destroy TB when it was first developing. And they had a 69% success rate with that, which is an impressive number. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for, like, any treatment at the time. Remember, before it was just breathing cold air. Mm-hmm. Now we have a real treatment that can remove it from your system. <laughs> Especially early on. So they're using their early feces tests in combo with chemotherapy now. Yeah. Um, by the 1940s, the population... Oh, in the 1940s, the population stayed between 200 and 300 patients, um, which is a little bit problematic because we have World War II, mm-hmm. and supplies are really rationed for them, and then a whole bunch of staff has to go off and be, like, frontline nurses and stuff. So they're really shorthanded there, too. And when everyone came back from the war, they found, again, they still had these 200, 300 patients the entire time. Only about a dozen of them could walk to the dining halls for meals. Most of them were extremely bedridden, so they were highly understaffed. And only 12 of them can feed themselves, and I bet you those 12 are also helping feed the others. Dang. That's Goodness. Um, Luckily, during this time, there were very few children there. Because they responded better to treatments, because, you know, they're kids. They didn't stay more than two years at the facility, which is good yeah. for them. I'm happy the kids are healing. <laughs> they, they really seem to be trying at this facility. Because um, I don't have any stories of, like, bad things that happened other than that struggle time during the 1940s in the World War II. Yeah. But that's, I mean, everybody is facing those issues mm-hmm. then. So, by the 1950s, chemotherapy is 91% effective at removing... 
um, tuberculosis. I didn't even know that they used that. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Oh, the cure is chemotherapy. I did not know that at all because I was wondering. I'd been wondering for a while. Why isn't that an issue anymore? (laughs) It's because you can fix it. (laughs) Um. So there's no longer, um, the need for the nopeming surgical unit because that's how you you cut it out before, I think. (laughs) Otherwise, why do you have a surgery unit? A quote from 1952 says, It is chiefly chemotherapy which has prolonged the lives of tuberculosis persons so that even those who do not recover from their tuberculosis may live long enough to die from something else. Uh, (laughs) You're like old age. That's great. (laughs) I'm sorry. Everybody dies from something. (laughs) I know, but why would you put it that way? They might not recover, but they will die from something else. And it will We're be not tuberculosis. Gonna... <laughs> okay, well. They're all getting cancer from the chemotherapy. <laughs> Probably. Anyway, no, but it, it, it it's essentially cures tuberculosis. Um, so by 1971, Nopeming becomes a nursing home. Because that, that's a, re- like, it was already heading there. And most places like that turn into mm-hmm. nursing homes. Oh, but they like, yeah, the people who are still here who have tuberculosis are all, all either elderly with tuberculosis and couldn't live on their alone, live alone with or without it, um, are, are super late stage TB sufferers who, I mean, like, they're not going to get better from chemo. They just sort of have to, I don't know, what were treatments for that? Iron lung? No, that's polio. Either way, they're not getting better, so they have to stay there too. So that's when they transition it. Um, so the campus goes under... A, I can't read this number, $140,000 remodel, um, and it, and in that they make it a 212 bed cap, and this is the entire time, still state run. Most of the building goes into disrepair, um, and by 18, 18, gosh, 1986, <laughs> we go back in time. 1845. <laughs> 1986, only the chateau and dining hall are remaining. So the big, slightly modern hospital building and the dining hall slash theater. So, so again, still a taxpayer-run institution, but nursing homes are more expensive to run than TB hospitals, apparently. And from... Oh, why? I could not tell you. <laughs> Um, anyway, okay. but from 1990 to 2000, it cost nearly $3 million to run the build, like, run the campus. With how many people? 212 cap. So I don't know if they had that many there at all times. Um, but that was the maximum. Um, and then on top of that, it had about $5 million worth of repairs that needed to be done to the building to keep it up to code. So it closed in 2002, because mm-hmm. that's just too much money for repairs. Oh, Finley wants in. Mm-hmm. That was Teddy. <laughs> oh, was it? Somebody wants in. Someone's home. Um, in 2005, uh, a developer from the Twin Cities bought the property, wanting to turn it into a teen addiction recovery center. <laughs> but through a long complication of events, it all fell through. Um, he had something to do with a big Ponzi scheme. That was part of it. <laughs> anyway, so the hospital is still empty. Um, I don't, I think, like, some, like, private, non-for-profit owns it now and is slowly, like, repairing things, because it's, it's literally absurdly expensive to remove the chateau building, because it's, it's, like, fort level built. <laughs> yeah. They did a good job. <laughs> so it's, it's cheaper to keep it there and sort of maintain it so it doesn't collapse on anybody. Um, an estimated... 1,500 people died there the entire time it was open, which is not that bad, considering it, like, was sort of meant for that. Yeah. Like, there, it, it seems like it did a good job. Nothing here strikes me as bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're just not telling those things, but there's, there's usually the gross stories of abuse come out, especially when something's been running into, like, recent memory. Yeah. Like, closed in 2002. <laughs> And people are still alive who would have known people who had TB and lived in it. Um, so now we're on to the paranormal. 
So again, obviously, quite a few people died at Nopeming um, from TB, old age. Some sources say there was a suicide that happened there at one point um, because there's metal bars that were put on the upper windows. That's why they say that. There's no record. There's just metal bars and pe- of a suicide. There's what does no that re- have to do with anything? Well, there's metal bars on the upper windows, Audrey. So clearly someone did it once and they had to put metal bars in. Because you have to have an excuse for metal bars on upper levels. They just let people do it over. Well, and you could have gone to the roof. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. Like, it's not stopping anything. I think the metal bars might have been in case of children or elders. Yeah. Like, there are plenty of reasons to put metal bars on upper windows. They do it as... That's why, like, school buildings have second stories and they only have that tiny window that opens at the bottom. So you can't, like, slip out or fall. Yeah, no, they didn't add that anyway. kind of stuff because someone jumped out and killed themselves back no, then. No, but they, they, were they needed... Like, well, if they want to do it, They're making a story it. to explain. Because it's more interesting, especially if it's going to be... Just like all the brides throwing themselves out of hotel yeah, windows. always brides. And it's like, <laughs> the window was always three centimeters long. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, you're like, tell how me they, how. how they fit their head <laughs> Tell me how. Like, <laughs> barely fit their hand through. <laughs> no room has windows. They hung <laughs> themselves out of every window that they could. <laughs> So Ghost Adventures has investigated this location, and I think they're the only people who have officially investigated the location. But I'm not going to talk about their investigation, because I haven't seen that one that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, instead, I found this um, like journalist's blog kind of thing, where they report... They, they went to school nearby, and they heard, heard about this place, so they went up there... To spend the night in it, basically, to see how creepy it was. This journalist. Okay. I thought it was, um, like, children. No, this it's it's a college-age journalist who just is going so to stay overnight and um, doesn't believe in the paranormal. Okay. <laughs> then why are you scared of the basement? That's what I thought. She wasn't. She very specifically no. went to the most I mean, terrifying locations home. the whole time. I don't know. I bet she was. She didn't talk about that. What normal person isn't scared of their basement? That's fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless you're rich and it's been finished your whole life and you've never been in a partially unfinished basement. Yeah, the whole cement vibe all around in a basement is just somehow slightly unsettling. Jail and ghosts. Anyway, so the first day they're there, they experience nothing. Um, And it's the second day that their paranormal experiences start off with a loud bang. Okay, a raccoon. Well, no, that's the thing. She she explains her like her interactions with raccoons. Like she saw like the first night she had seen a raccoon. The next night she found it dead because it ate rat poison. Oh, like things like she she always investigate. She says she always investigated the sound she saw. She would try to get it anyway. So the first thing she see hears is a loud bang, and she thinks it is a person who's come by to flush her out of the building. So they know she's there. She's not supposed to be there. She is trespassing. Okay. Um, like, the police regularly do rounds. Like, it's not abnormal for the police and the neighbors to check up on the location to make sure there's no, like, hoodlums doing naughty things. Anyway, but there's no one on the property from the beginning to the end of the search. There's no cars parked anywhere. She checks all the places. Um, so the loud bang is at the beginning of it all. Um, then... The call system for the nursing stations start being turned on in one of the patient rooms. So, you know, like you press your button to get your nurse to come. Mm-hmm. So that turns on. So she goes, turns it off. This is an annoying beep. <laughs> then down the hallway, another it's one's turned running. on. Apparently, <coughs> all the call systems still work because there's still electricity in the building. Um, Sorry. <coughs> a tickle. <laughs> a tickle. Okay. Okay, so she goes and investigates, turns the first one off, goes down the hallway, because another one's turned on. She decides to just ignore this one, because, like, she sort of thinks it's just people messing with her still, and she doesn't want to play their game, basically. Um, so she has a friend come over after that first night when the loud noises are happening, because mm-hmm. she's, she's just scared for her safety in case someone's, yeah. someone nefarious is going to come and harm her. So he comes, he is going to attach a device to the PA system to increase security for her that'll let her hear all the noises in the building that are near intercom microphones. Yeah. So she can just, like, okay, someone's... She can hear someone in a hallway for sure kind of thing. So, and then eventually they go back and turn off the call alarm because it gets annoying. <laughs> but it keeps turning on throughout the day. Um, they really need help in that room, I guess. Nurse, <laughs> I need to pee. <laughs> Hurry it up. So... That night, after her friend is left again, and um, 
she you know eating all that she's she sits and she listens to the pa system just for like funsies she has nothing else to do um she hears nothing until around 11 p.m when she hears running footsteps coming down the hallway um and then, so she's, she's hidden in, not hidden, she's staying in, she's sleeping in the, um, cafeteria stage room, which is attached mm-hmm. to the chateau, the main building. And the hallway goes through it, basically. So that yeah. comes to the hallway, you have to go through the cafeteria, go out the other hallway. So she's hearing footsteps run down the hallway, basically skip the room she's in, and then run down the other side. So, like, they would have had to go through no. the space she's in. Um, I don't like that. So she hears that. <laughs> um, and then she hears some screeching and popping sounds over the speaker, which are new because she's been listening to white noise for like hours yeah. at this point. So that's odd. And then the footstep, footstep thing happens again, running down the hallway, skipping the space she's in, running down the other side of the hallway. which is, <laughs> And then she'll hear like a humming noise coming through the PA system every so often that echoes throughout the building. So it's mm-hmm. not just like coming out of one speaker. It's everywhere that this humming noise can be heard. And it sounded a bit like polka music, she said. And that happens a few a few times. And then she will hear like a voice that's also in a tonal music manner. It's like someone singing along, not just humming. Mm-hmm. Um, so she eventually moves into the hallway where like the footsteps originally come from. To see if, like, maybe she can catch someone who's making fun of her. Yeah. Because she truly thinks the entire time she's right, like, seems to be truly thinking it's a person messing with her. Um, That's even scarier. Yeah, I know, exactly. And she's, like, absurdly brave. Why would you sit in the hallway where they can now get you? Because they're going to get caught and angry or something? I don't know. I don't trust people. Anyway, so she moves into the first portion of the hallway where she hears the steps. And while sitting in the hallway, she hears the footsteps again. But this time they're, like, walking. <laughs> And as they go by, what will be going by her with the sound, she feels a cold breeze. <laughs> I was like, ugh, that's gross. <laughs> so they passed her this time. Mm-hmm. They pass her and they're and walking because they, they know she's her. there, I guess. Because every other time she's heard it, it's running. <laughs> Ew. Both are disgusting. Yeah, no. So after that, she gets up and returns to, oh, I, no, it was the chapel that she was in, not the cafeteria. The chapel's in the middle. I'm sorry, I misremembered. She she spe- she sleeps in the um, the cafeteria the first night. That's what it is. That's when she hears the loud bang. Yeah. So no, she's in the chapel when all this is happening. Still the same placement, but a chapel instead. Because she also thought it, like she was a little freaked, so she stayed there because she thought it'd be like safer, you know, like mm-hmm. Jesus. <laughs> um, so as she's leaving, because she was sitting by a nurse's station, um. She hears, like, the distinctive sound of a coffee mug being set on the table, and then someone's, like, the squeak of someone sitting in a chair as she's walking away. I was like, that's so gross. Mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So, a few years later, the journalist returns with her friends to do the same thing, do, like, a little weekend sleepover, explore a bit, because, like, you know, abandoned locations are fun to explore. Um, not that this place is safe at all to explore. I do not promote that. But that's what she was doing. Um, you know, so they're doing their their sweep to make sure no one else is there. And to make sure, like, all windows and doors are closed and all that so no one can get in. Or if they do get in, they know where they came from. Yeah. And as they're doing that, <laughs> a door slams on one of the floors they just checked. So, like, there's no... They've closed the windows if they were open and there's nobody in them because they checked. Um, and she's like... And, like... The other, because it's her, her boyfriend, her, and then a girl and her boyfriend. So two boys, two girls. And the others are like, it just slammed. There's nobody there. We just checked. Like, they knew all this, too. And she goes, yeah, no, they just do that here sometimes. Which means, and the first time she told the story, doors slammed and she didn't report about it. (laughs) Like, slamming doors are a normal thing here, too. I mean, but it's like... Wind. But pressure things yeah. do that. It's like if they're opening other doors, <coughs> other doors might be closing even with windows closed. Um. Anyway, so they keep going. So now everybody's a little bit freaked anyway. So they go to a new floor. And on the ground, there's a brush, which is like out of place. Um, and it's a makeup brush that belongs to one of the friends. And it was last seen in her bag. So they go back to their stuff. And sure enough, there's no brush in her makeup bag, which was in the very bottom of her backpack. 
<laughs> and they, they like this is their first sweep. They have not gone like gone through before. It's not they're not backtracking and it fell out of a pocket. <laughs> so they're either telling her that she's too ugly and needs to put on more <laughs> or she's too pretty and needs to stop wearing makeup. <laughs> But that's the end of it. I don't... There's not, like... For it being considered a very haunted location in Minnesota, there's almost nothing that tells about hauntings there. Except for this girl's overnight trip. I mean, no one's supposed to trip. go there, so... Yeah, no. But there's no stories pre-it closing. Yeah. No, no nurses are coming forward and talking about the terrifying things that happened there. It's just this girl who stayed overnight um, illegally. Yeah. It was a well, well-written article, though. I had fun mm-hmm. reading it. She's a good little storyteller. And that's that's No Pimming Sanatorium. Well, that was a good one. Yeah. I just, I liked the highly personalized walkthrough story. Yeah. <laughs> it's only three o'clock. I'm ready <sighs> for another tea. <laughs> okay. Finish your lemonade. <laughs> Um, all right, well, try not to kill anyone and don't mess with Ouija boards. Bye. Bye.